0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, the Word of God comes to us this morning, Psalm 1. There's a debate raging as to whether Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 is the best-known psalm that there is. Uh, my apologies to Heath Allison who makes our drawings. They're really good, but this week I did the unthinkable and without permission, I colorized his drawing. Um, Heath, I, I really apologize. If we could, even, could we kill one of these rows of lights so that the, the slides show up a little more? Um, but I just wanted to make sure you knew that that in front was water and not earth. And I'm going to talk about the greenness of the leaves of the tree. And so I didn't colorize the whole thing just the parts that have symbolic significance in the message. I won't ever do it again without calling you. I'm wondering, and the, the, the title of the message, there's so many ways you could title a message on Psalm 1, depending on which lens you wear as you look at the passage. I've chosen to focus on what I think is one of the most beautiful images in that psalm, which kicks off the whole book of Psalms, and that is that God promised that those who follow him their lives, they would become like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. And I think that's a very, very uh, life-giving, energizing image that I hope will stay with you for a long time. I wonder if you've ever faced a fork in the road of your life. One of those decisions or events that at the time it was happening, you just knew in your gut, this is one of those big turning points in my life, where the way I decide from this point moving forward is going to change everything. In fact, it will set me on a course from which I won't really be able to recover. I can't undo this one. It's sort of like when you get down on your knee and you ask a girl, will you marry me? And in the back of your mind you're going, oh man, I just did it. I stepped in it because this is it. I don't get to go, you know what controls me, that last thing. Um, I, I don't know what I was thinking. You can't do that there are certain things where once you choose a fork in that road and you go down one of those roads, it will take your life in a decisive direction quite the other way from the other choice you could have made. And I know that a lot of times we like to think that all roads eventually reconnect, but the truth is they don't. There are some roads that are mutually exclusive from one another, that having chosen the one, you by definition then unchoose all other roads related to that. And you can't go back to where you started and return to the fork in the road and make up your mind again. Robert Frost captured um, that idea very beautifully in the poem, The Road Not Taken, when he says, Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I love that poem, and I especially love that line because it says it. You can only think about these things looking back because you can't redo. You just can't do it over. And there are choices some of us have already made at those forks in the road of our life, which clearly looking back you realize it's taken me on a very, very defined direction and there's no other way to go. The Bible actually uh, talks about, and it's a very common image in Scripture, that in life there are two roads. There are two pathways, two options, two gates. Whatever um, kind of imagery you want to use, two masters. But in life, for the human being, there are only two paths that a human life can take. There is the road that leads towards God, and there is the road that leads away from God. And it's just that simple. And those two roads will never be made to connect. And I imagine that you can stand at the fork in the road... And if you can see this, you can try to like, keep your feet on both roads and straddle them as you're moving forward. But guess what? Like a conveyor belt, life just keeps moving, and eventually, unless you can do the splits and then stretch your legs indefinitely, you realize something's going to rip. You can't possibly reconcile life on both those roads for very long. Eventually, you realize you have chosen one. You must pick one, and once you pick the one then you will say goodbye to the other for good. The road that leads to God is referred to in Scripture by various names, the the way of Christ, the good news, the gospel, the, the way of the righteous, and then the way that leads away from God is referred to as the way or the path of wickedness, of the way of the sinner, the way of those who do not fall under the protection of Jesus Christ, those who are lost. Now when we say sinner, we never speak that word at this church looking down our noses like we're good people and look at the sinners down there. That is never the spirit in which we refer to that word. What we say is those people who, as we all were, were bound under the guilt and burden of the wrong we had done, deserving the justice of a holy God, and there is no one to step in and say, yet I forgive you. I rescue you from that. You're free. The sinner is the person who is still bound up as we are in sin and yet they have no advocate, no rescuer who will say, I save you. Just like when you're playing dodgeball, and you know how it is. You get hit, and then you, you know, we play a variation uh, where you sit down on the ground once you're hit, and a friend has to risk their hide to come tag you to save you. And if you're not popular, you sit in the middle of that gym floor forever. No one, they run right past you. Oh, excuse me, I almost touched you. They won't even bend down to save you. And that's what it feels like to be on the road that leads away from God, is to know that you're not that great a person. You're trying to make the best of it. But you know that you've done things that store up very bad, if you would use the non-biblical language, karma. Horrible credits against you, debits. And you wonder, what am I going to do with this problem? And the resounding answer is a deafening silence. Nothing. You're just going to have to eat that. And that's what we mean when we talk about the two roads. One that is the way of the wicked, and one that is the way of the righteous. It is not righteous because we're good people and we do right, but it's righteous now. Because the one true righteous man, Jesus, walked that road and then covered us with the credit that was given to him. And so it is the path that leads and journeys with Jesus. The question is, which path do we find ourselves on? And the real answer to that is not as simple to discover as you might think. Because there is an answer that rests on your lips and one that helps you sleep at night, but then there is the real testimony the answer of our whole lives and that's the answer that ultimately matters and so i I would like this message to be an occasion for us to reflect on some of those things which path do i find myself on i do believe that the majority of people in this fellowship because of the mercy of jesus have found their way onto the path that leads to god and to life that's eternal the path that is defined by jesus christ but i will say this you can still kind of see that other road from the one you're on, just like when you're on the highway and you see the frontage road, the one that's traveling much slower but pretty much it looks like it's paralleling you. And I want you to know that at that fork in the road, sometimes you can look at that other road and get confused. And so I want to talk about beware the wicked path. I I used a little Photoshop magic to make the, the path look more ominous than the original photo look, but that's kind of the way it is with the path of wickedness. If it had monsters all around the entrance, no one would walk in. It begins inviting and bright and well-lit, but it takes you slowly into a tunnel where it gets darker and darker and harder to see what's in front of you. Here's what the Word of God says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, he's saying the person who is blessed according to the Bible is the one who avoids the the way of wickedness. The one who keeps their feet off of that road that leads away from God towards death and destruction, which is certain. Now here are some of the things that he uses to describe the way of the wicked. One of them is that he doesn't, or he or she, by the way, in this psalm it uses the masculine pronoun. Please don't be alarmed, ladies. It is really just a generic think for humankind and so i don't want you to think of this as like you can zone out and the men have to pay attention it's for all of us okay he or she does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and really all that means is they do not live their lives persuaded by the advice of those who care very little for god they do not listen to advice that springs out of a life that doesn't know the truth of god And there's a lot of advice out there that at the moment seems to make sense, like if they knock you down, you knock them out. Do you get that? And that's the kind of advice I often heard growing up, not from my parents, but from my friends. You know, if you want to really be a man, and there's a lot of chest thumping going on in our culture, right? Then when you hit me once, I'm going to hit you for the last time. You won't get up from that hit, because that's what it means to be a man. If you hurt me once, you're dead to me. I don't even know you exist anymore. I will walk away from you and forget your name. That's the advice, the counsel of the wicked. Those who don't understand how human life works. Those who make up rules that serve them with a total ignorance of the way the human heart is designed. And as a result, they find that they live in a world full of people who conspire against them when the truth is they don't know how to make life work. It also says that this person who is blessed does not stand in the way of sinners. What that means really is this. They do not adopt a lifestyle where they play with those things which God, for our own good, has forbidden. You know, there are kids who no matter how many times you tell them not to play with matches, they have to burn all the hair off their bodies at least once to realize that the parents gave the rule not to suck the joy out of life, but to keep them well follicled, okay? I mean, that's the point of it. The rules they give us as parents, are for our own preservation, not to suck the joy out of the experience of living. And yet there are those who just don't accept or understand that some rules, some authorities, are meant for our benefit. And so the way of the sinner is such that they, they just basically blow off the things which God has said, whether it's things we ought to do or things we ought to avoid, none of that matters because the authority of God doesn't matter. They will decide what they'll do in life, They will ultimately be the gatekeepers of their lifestyle and as a result then they usurp the place of God and they become as a God unto themselves. And that path can only lead to destruction. And finally it says they don't sit sit in the seat of scoffers. And what that's talking about is those people who have an attitude about God that's just belittling they look at the people who speak of God at times of sorrow or tragedy, like the earthquake in Haiti. I've been reading all these blogs about the Haiti earthquake in the aftermath, and I'm astounded at how many hateful people get on these blogs and they'll actually invest their time to say things like, oh, you stupid religious people spouting on about God, this has nothing to do with God. God fell asleep at the steering wheel. That's why this happened. Why don't you send water instead of your stupid prayers? And And there's this attitude out there that anybody who speaks of spiritual things, of the things of God, is a fool. That this is all imagination, the crutch of the weak, the opiate of the masses, and we're the dummies who are deceived and fooled into believing these things. I check quite often with others to see if I'm becoming stupider every day, but I think my eyes are open. And I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I'm paying attention as I walk forward in life. And I have not checked my brain at the door. I believe with all my heart that I have known and felt and believed the truth when I have come to Jesus Christ. And I will make much of what God makes much of. And I will not mock Him or belittle Him. Because the truth is, I'm not so sure I want to live in a universe that has no God and it's just one supreme accident of coincidence. By the way, that I think stretches my faith more than the other explanation. And so there is this this idea that I distance myself from the attitude that prevails in the world that religion is a joke and that God does not exist and is a figment of a weak imagination. The person who is blessed then knows the dangers of walking along a road where those kinds of ideas and influences are everywhere. There seems to be another aspect though to this part, this first verse. And and, and notice the order in which it appears. Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk, does not stand, does not sit. Now do do you notice, and a lot of scholars, this is not my original thinking, but a lot of scholars have noticed that's the exact opposite of the order in which human beings learn to walk. We start out, if you've ever seen a newborn I love that stage because you can plop them down anywhere and it's like a beanbag chair. It's not moving. You plop it down, you go tend to the the stove that's boiling over and you can come back and they're still just right there. That's sitting. And then you stand and that's where they're like, you know, like it's kind of precarious but they can stand and then they walk and that's the natural progression. It seems then here that it's portraying a devolution. Going from adulthood to childhood where you become more and more helpless and immobile as you journey down this path. That, that this person who walks then only stands. So you're like walking, go, hey, look at that other lifestyle. And then you, oh, hold on, check out that other lifestyle. And then suddenly they're sitting down getting popcorn going, I kind of like it here. I think I'm going to set camp up right here on this road. And what that's painting a picture of is the great danger of flirting with the path that leads to death. Because it's a path of progressive seduction. And do you know, this is the way seduction works. Um, Ladies, when you're seduced by a man, it doesn't usually work when he goes, Hey you, you be my girl. Come with me, my home, I take care of you, give you food, you give me other things. That's not the way it works, is it? The guy's got to be a little bit smoother than that. It starts out with, hey, um, do you need a ride to church? And, you know, yeah, that real smooth, like, safe, kind of, we're in a group. How about we go bowling? And then, you know, I noticed you, your, your earring was broken, so I bought you a replacement. you got to be a little more subtle. That's the way seduction works. You don't realize you're getting bushwhacked until it's too late. And a good seducer knows how to do it very quietly so that your heart is gone before you even realize there was a plan afoot. That's the way it works, with the progressive seduction of the dark side. We learned that from Star Wars in the late 70s, but the Bible has been teaching that ever since the beginning. And those who flirt with it do not fare well in the end. You've got to be careful about how susceptible we all are to that smooth voice, the seductive spirit that reigns in the world. I, more than me saying, it, I wanted you to see this clip of a man's testimony that I think is very powerful and speaks to this.:
1: I thought that the day my story came out, my ministry would be over. It turns out that's the day it started. reputation was everything for me. I set out uh, to build a good reputation and to protect it, which meant that there were parts of my life that I couldn't let anybody see. There were some battles I had to fight alone. I got my first look at hardcore pornography on a seminary-sponsored trip to New York City. My wife was with me. They took us on a tour of Times Square so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. I was shocked by what I saw. and Disgusted by it. But I was also fascinated. It hit me, hooked me, deep. I didn't just like porn. I became obsessed with it, and it eventually took me places I never intended to go. So before I know it, I'm a, I'm a pastor, married, three kids, and I'm picking up my first hooker on my way to lead a candlelight service on Christmas Eve.
0: I invite you to watch the rest of that testimony at this website, and it's a powerful website being used by those who want to speak of the glory of Christ through an honest confession of their testimonies. Amazing stories told on that website, and Nate Larkin was a pastor who lost everything because of that addiction, and it started, as he confessed, on a seminary-sponsored trip to see the ravages of the sex industry and he got sucked into the very thing which he was there to be horrified at. It became his obsession. He wrote a book called Samson and the Pirate Monks, and a group of us, we went through that book in a seminar at last year's men's retreat, and many who read it saw how powerful his testimony was, but also how powerful the progressive seduction of the path of wickedness really is. It can cost us everything. And the Bible goes on to say about those who choose that path that the wicked, and let's not misunderstand that phrase, we're all wicked in our hearts, but those apart from God, they're like chaff that the wind drives away and therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You know what chaff is? It's like when you take wheat and you've harvested it, but there's a part of the wheat you can't use. It's the worthless, dry outer husk, the shell. And so what they do is they put it on a threshing floor and with either uh, their feet or with some machine, they, they thresh the wheat. They break it up so that the, the good part, the kernel which we want to eat, is separated from the worthless husk that's outside. That husk is something like that, that annoying piece of, of hard stuff from the popcorn that you choke on when you're eating. You know, that, that's, it's, you don't want it. It's, it has nothing to do with your enjoyment. And so what they do is they do this build the threshing floors, typically on the top of a high hill where there's a good breeze, and then they take a winnowing fork, and they take the whole mess and throw it up in the air. And the chaff, which is now separated from the kernel, which is heavier, the kernels fall to the ground, and the chaff just gets blown away by the wind, and really nobody gives a hoot what happens to the chaff. It's garbage. We're glad that the wind blows it away, Because even animals don't want to eat the chaff. They're eyeing the kernel with greedy eyes. Now most theologians, when they read that, they emphasize the worthlessness of the chaff. And I understand there's some truth to that. The life, apart from God, ends up proving itself to be fairly without worth. It doesn't have much to speak of at the end, except a bunch of accomplishments which don't mean a whole lot in the final analysis. And so there is some truth to the fact that the life apart from God, the life led away from God, is worthless, but I'm uncomfortable focusing only on that. Because in a way, that's as if I'm saying that person is worthless, when in fact the gospel says that's not true. Here's what I believe it's really saying as well, is that the emphasis should also be placed on the lightness of the chaff. Its absolute weightlessness, not its worthlessness, but the fact that there's no substance there. The life without God might have the illusion of being a full life, an exciting life. Hey, you only live once and I suck the juice and the marrow out of life. It may look like that, but in the end prove only to be the flash in the pan. Now, let me illustrate it this way, okay? Suppose that you got to spend a day <clears throat> with George Clooney back when ER was at its height and he was playing Dr. Doug Ross. I got a man crush on this dude. I mean, he's just... He's, He's so good looking and so smooth. And he lives in Italy in a villa. And he's funny. He can do comedy. He's an action hero. Anyway, <clears throat> that's just for the guys. You ladies, we don't even need to talk about, right? I mean, that's George Clooney. And he's playing Doug Ross, thoughtful, sensitive pediatrician. I mean, give me a break. Now, let's suppose you got to spend a whole day with him and your mind is blown that I'm hanging out with Dr. Doug Ross from ER, George Clooney, and he's the cat's meow, and you just can't get enough of this guy. You're starstruck. But then at the end of the day, something happens, and you break your leg, and you're, 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 I just called it, what's the bone down there? Is it tibia or something? Just stuck right out of your skin and... And you go, oh my goodness, I need a doctor. And you turn to him and you realize, oh crud, he's not a real doctor. He just plays one on TV. And suddenly the guy you thought was everything proves to really just be an illusion. If, If the goal of life was to know famous people and be around them, then you won the game. But when you need a doctor, the guy who plays one on TV seems suddenly amazingly clearly not of much value at that moment see if life was just a meaningless existential journey where you're just here you show up you experience a lot and then you check out then really it doesn't matter which road you take both of them are filled with potent powerful experiences do you understand that those people go i'll see you in hell and they rock hard they party, they snort everything they sleep with anything that moves, those people are having a life.